song that we just sang. Are we at church ready for the Lord's return? I know we all long for it. And we're waiting for it. And what we will see this morning is that there are some things that we should be doing while we wait, while we wait on the Lord. So if you would open your Bible to James chapter 5. This morning we're going to conclude our study of the epistle of James and our message uh, will come directly from James 5 verses 7 through 20. We'll have a few references to the book of Job, the gospel of Matthew, and uh, several places in the New Testament letters. I too many to list here this morning, um, but our focus is going to be on uh, what James, uh, the brother of Jesus, the author of this passage, aims at uh, teaching us and what the Lord who, by his Holy Spirit, inspired James to pen this letter intends for us. So we're going to read the passage. We'll make some observations and some applications as we go. But first off, um, let us pray. Father, we do long for Christ's return. We come this morning with a desire to hear the wise counsel of the Holy Scriptures. We ask for your intervening and enabling grace for us this morning that we would hear, and not only hear, we would do the word that you have delivered to us this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would inflame our hearts, enlighten our minds by your word, through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, who saved us. Amen. Amen. So let us read beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives it, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain uh, for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's unchanging, infallible word for us this morning. Thanks be to God. See, Jesus is coming. The time is at hand. Our redemption is coming. 
God will rescue us. Evil doers will be judged. The enemies of our souls will be vanquished. Sin will be eradicated. Justice will prevail. Suffering will end. Oppression will be stopped once and for all. The righteous will be vindicated. But, as Corinthians says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see, we live in a tension, don't we? Between what we know, Christ is coming, and what we cannot know, the day or the hour of his return. Last week we saw in our text that one of the hardest things for a person to do is to submit all that they are to the sovereign will of God. I was even thinking about that passage this morning as we were saying, I surrender all. That is a difficult, difficult task in our humanity to surrender all to the sovereign will of God. It's one of the hardest things that we are called to do as Christians. What we'll see this morning is that submission to God has as its companion an equally difficult call. Wait. Not only are we called to submit and lay everything down for the Lord Jesus, but we're called to wait on him. To wait for his sure coming. Submission to the will of God and to wait on the timing of his promised redemption is probably a good summary of the Christian life, isn't it? We could summarize what it is, what it means, and how we're living is this life that we live is to be submitted to the will of God and to wait for our redemption to come. That's kind of a good summary of the Christian life, I think. And the question before us this morning that James is going to answer is, uh, what do we do in this life that is filled with trouble and suffering? What do we do while we wait? While we're waiting, what is it? that we're called to do. And before we dissect this passage in James, would you turn with me to Titus uh, chapter 2? I want to look at uh, verses 11 uh, through uh, 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. While the Christian waits and awaits the hope of the coming Savior, Titus tells us that we are to pursue godliness. We are to renounce the ways of the world as a testimony to the reality of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin having redeemed us. It's just a testimony to the reality of what Christ has accomplished in us. And it is, a, it, it is, it is confirming and affirming to the world that the, the, the confession you make about Jesus Christ is a reality because now you have... Uh, been transformed to pursue that which you wouldn't have pursued before. You pursue 
godliness and righteousness, and you renounce the ways of the world. But let us look now back at our passage in James chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We can all say this, that things are not the way as they should be. We look around us and we see that human government is corrupt. Sickness, famine, injustice, and wickedness prevail. It seems as though truth cannot be found. It seems that when we look around the world, that sin is celebrated. When we look around the world around us, we see that God has been removed from every human institution. It seems that everything in the world is falling apart. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, because we long for an escape from this world and this system of wickedness. Well, James says to the displaced, the oppressed, the marginalized Christians, yes, there is trouble and there is suffering all around you, but things are not falling apart. The sovereign will of God is being accomplished. The promises of God are true. Christ is coming to rescue his people. Be patient. Things are not falling apart as you suppose, but they are falling into place that the Lord is ushering in his return. Be patient. Remember what Jesus says in John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We are not yet overcomers, but look at what Revelation 12 11 says, and they, that is the rescued in Christ, have conquered him, that is the enemy, by the blood of the lamb, that is Jesus, atoning death for sin, and the word of their testimony, for they loved not even their life, even unto death. Be patient, James says, until the day of your redemption. Christ is coming for his church. The church will overcome the evil one just as our Savior overcame sin and death. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Be patient, brothers. You see, the farmer, he awaits the timing of the harvest, doesn't he? And he anxiously awaits the fruit. He knows the fruit is coming, but he anxiously awaits the fruit to come. But he patiently continues his work until the time is full. The farmer does not know the exact hour, the exact moment that those that his crops will bear fruit, but he knows that they will come. So he patiently awaits with anticipation. He's waiting with anticipation, longing for it probably to come earlier. Desiring for it to come earlier, but he must wait. And while he's waiting, he must work. And while he's waiting and working, he must be trusting in the timing of the Lord's provision. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You be patient also and establish your hearts. When we look around at our present condition, the Christian knows that the Lord's return could be very soon, 
But no man knows the hour or the day. So James says, be patient. Like the farmer waits patiently for the sure promise of the harvest, the genuine believer waits for the coming of the Lord with anxious anticipation coupled with patient endurance. As we live in the tension between the sure promise of the Lord's return and the tests and trials of living in a world that is contrary to Christ and his kingdom purposes, the genuine believer is actually, according to James, what we've been studying so far, he's being formed by those trials and tests to trust in the Lord no matter how long the delay. No matter how long the delay of the Lord, he puts his trust, the genuine believer puts his trust steadfastly in the Lord and in his promises. No matter how long the delay or how dire the conditions become. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Well, remember, it says here to establish our hearts. Remember the heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. Be patient and make sure when the Lord returns, he finds you established in the faith from the heart. That's the idea that he's getting across here. Establish your heart. While we wait for Christ's return, the priority in our lives is to be in a battle, to do the work, to be in a battle against the residual sin that is in our hearts, to be in a battle against the residual attachments we have to worldliness. He says, establish your hearts. What's the first way to establish your heart? I believe it's this. Examine whether you be in the faith at all. That's the first step. Examine whether you really be in the faith. And then second, examine, do I have any evidence that my life has been changed by the gospel of grace? Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica asked the Lord to establish believers and, to, and for believers then to also establish themselves. You see, we kind of get a little lazy in American church, don't we? We get a little lazy. We think, let go and let God. Let's wait for Jesus to come. We're just waiting for him to return while we do nothing. Well, the scriptures are pretty clear that the Lord does establish our hearts. He establishes our salvation and our trust in him. But we also have work to do to establish that and firm that up and work to be done. There's work to be done. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 through 13, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. May the Lord make us increase. While you wait, he says, be patient. Establish your hearts in the faith. Renounce ungodliness and worldliness. In this present time, pursue an upright life before God. Live your life controlled by the spirit and not by the flesh or by self-will. And understand this, that not only is Jesus coming as the rescuer, but Jesus is the judge. He is the rescuer, but he is also the right judge. Jesus is coming. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus could return at any moment. If you look around, you could understand what this verse says, that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the rescuer and the judge will return. You see what he's saying here? Brothers and sisters, and I hope that we are hearing this this morning. The finish line is obviously at hand. 
We don't know the day or the hour of when the finish line is coming, but we're there. We are almost at the finish line. Don't give up now. Be patient. Press on. Push forward. Establish your hearts in the faith. Pursue an upright life before God. Live your life self-controlled. Live your life controlled by the Spirit, not controlled by the flesh, he says. The finish line is at hand. Does it ever make you pause to ask this question? It does me. I look around, I know that the finish line is at hand. And Jesus is coming to be my rescuer, but also my judge and the judge of the whole world. Jesus is coming, but what will he find when he returns? Will he find faith? Will he find faithfulness? Will he find hearts established by the word of truth? Or will he have found us as Christians acquiescing to all the things of the world and he can't tell the difference between a Christian gathering and, uh, you know, a, a banquet? What will he find? Will he find faith? When we look at verse 9, he says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The world will soon be judged. Jesus is coming soon. That's cause for celebration, brothers and sisters. Okay, it is. It's cause for celebration. But I, I also think that knowing this, that Jesus is not just the rescuer, but he's also the, the judge is pause. Time to pause for examination. Pause to recognize whether we be in the faith. Pause to look at our pursuit of holiness and godly living. And are we being sanctified by the word of truth? The world is soon to be judged. And we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. James says, don't grumble against one another. And think about this. <laughs> the worldly grumble and complain about their situation over and over again. We hear it all day long on the news and on TV. The world is grumbling about their plight, their situation, about people who have different opinions than them, about their uh, perceived oppressions and perceived wrongs done to them. James is, James is warning here that God will avenge oppressors and God, when he comes, Jesus, as judge, will sort the sheep from the goats. And when he says here in verse 9 that the judge is standing at the door, don't grumble against one another. He is standing at the door. He's, it, the idea here is don't capitulate to the ways of the world. Don't fall into their grumbling, griping about their conditions. And secondly, don't retaliate. We get fired up about things and really want to retaliate, retaliate, retaliate. Well, how can I not say that word? Retaliate against like, you know, everything seems to be opposed to Christianity in the news and in government and just the way life is, right? And there can be this stir in us to want to retaliate, retaliate with our words, make judgmental comments. As we talked about time and time again, our mouths will get us in deep, deep trouble. It will show the depravity of our hearts. We tend to do that. And James here is saying, don't capitulate to the world, but at the same time, don't retaliate. 
Christ is coming as both rescuer and the, and the judge. But there is only but one righteous judge. So he's telling him here too, amongst each other, be careful in your judgments with one another, lest it be returned to you in the same measure when Christ comes. And lest it be measured back to you in the same way. Be careful. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James says to the dispersed, those who are marginalized, who are maligned, these Jewish Christians, look at the history of the Lord's chosen the Lord's chosen voices. And I, I could go into many, many passages to take us through all of the prophets and what they suffered as they waited for the Lord to accomplish the things that were coming out of their mouths. They would make these proclamations and then it would be years, sometimes centuries, before the things that these prophets spoke came to pass. And yet these prophets were crucified, killed, for the things, the proclamations that they made, but they patiently waited for the Lord to act. Look at all of these, he says, as these guys waited patiently for God to move. You know, think about the harshest conditions like Jeremiah, and he remained steadfast to proclaim the word of the Lord in total opposition to everything he was going to say. While you and I grumble, we grumble about government overreach. We grumble about the removal of our freedoms. We grumble about inconvenient disruptions to our normal lives. But do these grumblings, do they really reveal something about our thoughts and our characterization of who God is? Sometimes our grumblings betray our confession. Our grumblings betray the fact that we are waiting upon the sure promise of the Lord's return. Sometimes our grumblings reveal our thoughts and characterizations of God in a negative way. And he says, consider the steadfastness of Job. So would you turn to Job with me? Uh, first off, chapter 1. I want to read uh, chapter 1, 18 through 22. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's look at chapter 2, verse uh, beginning verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And lastly, let's turn to the last chapter of Job 42. And let's look at verses 2 through 6. 
This is Job's confession. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, we understand that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remain steadfast. That is the other lesson, right? We should be patient with one another, not grumble, and remain steadfast because Jesus is coming to bring great blessing and terrible judgment. He's bringing great blessing and terrible judgment. The great grace, though, for us is the ultimate deliverance from our worldly difficulties. And what does it do for us? The great grace that has been given to us, it is first an ultimate deliverance from our worldly issues and difficulties and sin. But it keeps the steadfast from grumbling. Our assurance of God's grace and deliverance keeps us from judgmentalism, keeps us from capitulating to evil and worldliness. And like Job's mouth was stopped, we should commit ourselves to letting our words be few. Look at James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Remember what James taught us in chapter 3. He said, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James here says, let your words be few. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If we let our words be few, we understand this, that anything else is boasting, James also says. Anything else is boasting. You can stand there and appear depraved, as I said before, or you can open your mouth and remove all doubt. James says, while you wait on the rescuer and judge, let your yes be yes, your no be no, lest your words condemn you before the coming judge. Jesus is coming soon. He is the coming rescuer and judge. The will of God for us is to respond to our difficulties with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let us look at verses 13 through 15. And there is uh, ways in which when we look at this uh, passage, that there's a proper response in all situations. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Giving thanks in all things does not negate or minimizing 
minimize the sufferings that we are sure to have in this life, does it? doesn't mean that you're thankful for the pain it causes, but it says in all things to give thanks. All situations, all things that come your way. Give thanks in all things. Again, it doesn't minimize our suffering, but we know that we are awaiting our Savior to return, our Rescuer. And in the meantime, there's a proper godly response to our pain, and there's a proper godly response to our victories. The godly response to suffering, both illness and oppression, both loss and failure, is prayer. Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders to pray. If your heart is cheerful and your circumstances are pleasant, praise him. Any cheerfulness that we have in this present life owes itself to the great grace and kindness of God toward us. We have so much already in our salvation in Jesus, don't we? If he gives us ease and comfort and good things, is that not just a cherry on the top as we await our redemption, our full redemption, and we trust in that? And he says, so if your heart is cheerful and your circumstances are pleasant, praise him. Give him praise. While we wait for the Lord, pray in times of trouble and praise him for the victories. While we wait for our redemption, James says, in all circumstances, we are to have a God-centered, God-dependent life. When you look at this, he says, if, if anyone's suffering, if anyone's sick, let him pray. That's God-dependence, isn't it? If anyone is cheerful and things are going well, praise him. That's a God-centered life. Our response in all circumstances is to have our lives centered on God, on his sure promises. A God-centered, God-dependent life. If you're sick, seek the overseers for your soul. In this section, it talks about um, elders, calling the elders to pray for those who are sick. And the reason for calling the elders to come to pray for those who are sick is that uh, hopefully those are the men who are overseeing your soul. They are those who pray for you constantly and consistently. They are those who Minister the word of God to you. Ask them to pray over you. You see, not all sickness is caused by sin, but seek those who will intervene on your behalf. They'll intervene on your behalf not only for your physical condition, but also for your soul condition. It is faithful, dependent prayer that the Lord will use to save your soul. And if it is will, if it is in his will, he will heal your afflictions as well. While you wait for Christ's return, commit yourselves to properly respond to suffering and blessing in prayer and in praise to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As James told us in 1.6, all that prayer needs to be done so without doubting or we don't suppose that the Lord will answer. All that is done with confidence in who God is for us in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning he was a sinner. 
And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. See, God uses steadfast faith to accomplish his will on earth. God uses the steadfast in faith to accomplish his will on earth. He uses the elders to administer the word of God and to intercede on behalf of the elect. That which God does through the elders, he also does through all who are called according to his purpose. Notice that it shifts from, if you're ill, have the elders come and pray. And then in verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That which the position the elders take is the position that we all should take. While we wait upon the imminent return of Christ, God's rescuer and judge, we have work to do. God works powerfully through the prayer of the saints. Prayer doesn't change God's sovereign will, but God's will is often accomplished through the powerful prayers of his saints. You get that? We are not changing God's will through our prayer. He is sovereign still. But the sovereign God embraces the praises of his people and his and their prayers to accomplish his will. And as we pray and as we press in dependent upon him, guess what? Then our will starts to align with his. And the things we ask for are the things that God would desire. And then he accomplishes his will through us. Do not grumble and complain about the condition of the world and the sins of others. And I ask ourselves this, I ask myself this, I ask myself this like all weekend, okay? Uh, this is, do you pray as much as you gripe? Do you wrestle with God to answer your prayers over the besetting sins that you have in your life? Do you pray to the point of tears? Or do you presume upon God to look the other way until the day of Christ and all will be made right? Sometimes that is our approach to our Christian life, isn't it? Is that I've got this besetting sin, but I know that the Lord is one day going to redeem me from all of that. So I'll just wait until he does. But James here is talking about the fervent, powerful prayer of a righteous man accomplishing much. The fervent prayer of the saints, James says, is powerful. What does the word fervent mean? Well, it's like a kettle of water boiling over from persistent and constant heat. Do our prayers bubble over from persistent and constant attention? Do our prayers bubble over? I was talking with Caleb this morning, and I, I, I've read this book several times, and I'm reading it through the fourth time now. I read just one little section a day because it's very deep and hard to chew on, and it's called The Power of Prayer. And after I've read through it several times, I every time I get through at least the last section that I read yesterday morning, um, I've never prayed once in my life, not compared to what the kind of prayer that is being discussed and the powerful kind of prayer that's being discussed there is about constant, persistent prayer that bubbles over, that flows out of you into your life. It's, it's about wrestling with God. Prayer is like wrestling with God. 
Because guess what? You come in with your uh, sin, your affections for, for the world, and you've got to wrestle with God, and he releases those from me, but you've got to wrestle with him. He's got to remove that piece of depravity that is still left in us, right? And so it, it's a wrestling with God. Do we, do we pray in that way? While you wait, he says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in prayer. Consider the fervent prayer of Jesus as compared to our own often lethargic and very weak prayers. Hebrews says this in 12, verse 3 and 4, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. And yet you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Imagine when Jesus was in the garden. Father, if you could take this cup from me as he sweat blood, as he was pressed in, in prayer, seeking the Father. But have we prayed in the same fervent way that, like this, we have not struggled against sin to the point of shedding our own blood? God's sovereign will is being accomplished through the fervent prayers of the saints. Prayer is our first work. Jesus is coming. While you wait, pray without ceasing. And listen to how God works salvation through the work of the saints in verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, we saw in verse 12 of chapter 5 that James says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But it's also a way of kind of saying this. Be of the truth and speak the truth. Our words being simple, yes and no, telling the truth, being a person of the truth, speaking the truth. I say this, when in doubt, shut up. When convinced, speak. If you have doubts, keep your mouth closed. If you're convinced, speak the truth, speak up. God uses his saints to make disciples and to save souls through their speaking the word of truth. Through speaking the word of truth. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. To bring a person back from wandering away from the truth, one must speak the truth to them, right? They must be of the truth and speak the truth to their brothers. When you're convinced, speak the truth. Speak the word of truth. God uses his saints to make disciples and to save souls through their speaking of that word of truth. You must words to pluck the wanderer from the fire, warning them that Jesus is coming to rescue and to judge. Know that the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Disciple makers have two voices. They have a voice that encourages their fellow Christian to remain steadfast, speaking the truth in love, reminding them of blessing. And they have another voice that warns, that warns that behavior matters. Godliness matters in this life. The judge of your soul is coming. Behavior matters. 
The will of God to save the elect is done through the elect of God speaking the truth in love. Does that make sense? I want to say it again. The will of God to save the elect is done through the elect of God speaking the truth in love. Jesus is coming to rescue and to judge. Our redemption is near. So I want to pose some questions for us to ponder in our hearts this week. While we wait, will we patiently endure hardships, troubles, and trials? Will we work to establish our hearts in holiness? While we wait, will we neither capitulate to the worldly, nor will we retaliate against those who have sinned against us? While we wait, will the circumstances of this evil, sinful world cause us to grow in steadfast faithfulness to God? Will we trust that God is compassionate and gracious and so live in the world with compassion and grace with our brothers as well as our enemies? Jesus is coming soon and very soon. While we wait, will we fervently, independently give thanks to God in all circumstances? Will we pray to him in the storm? Will we praise him in the good times? Will we be people of the truth? Will we do the work of disciple makers, encouraging and warning, speaking the truth in love? Let us take now a moment of silence to ask God to have his word have its full effect on our hearts. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We praise you for Jesus Christ and his atoning death for us. There's some hard truths that we looked at this morning, and we need grace. We need grace to be patient. We need grace to not grumble in our circumstances. We need grace to be thankful um, in all things, in suffering. We need grace to be convinced that we are dependent upon you. We need grace to enable us to uh, pray fervently. We need grace for that prayer to be bubbling over as just part of our lives and who we are. We need grace in this time while we wait for your return. May we wait with patience, but also as we are patiently waiting, may we do the work and you find faith when you return. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.